Welcome to Event Up, the place where people enthusiastic about events stay in the know on the latest trends within the events industry. Live, hybrid, and virtual experiences. From virtual events to conferences, award galas, and everything in between. Here's your host, Amanda Ma. Welcome to Event Up. In this episode, we will be discussing the state of industry, venue contracts, best practices. Today, I'm joined by Taylor Fry with the Pasadena Convention and Visitors Bureau. Taylor Fry is the National Sales Manager for the Pasadena Convention and Visitors Bureau. He promotes Pasadena as a leading destination for conventions and meetings to a select clientele of national associations and corporations. He's responsible for identifying, developing, and successfully booking these events in Pasadena Convention Center and Civic Auditorium, as well as driving hotel room night production to the city's hotels. Taylor previously worked in destination sales for the Anaheim Orange County CVB after he started his career with Hilton Hotels. And a little birdie also told me he was 30 under 30, very accomplished, so very excited that he's here to join us today. Let's jump right in. Thanks, Amanda. Taylor, why don't you share with the audience, like how'd you get started within this industry? Mm, okay. Well, uh, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to work in the hospitality industry. Uh, so when it came time to, even as far back as applying for colleges, I discovered uh, Cal Poly Pomona's College of Hospitality Management and was fortunate that in that case, one of the most uh, prominent hospitality programs in the country was right in my own backyard. So uh, I spent four years there as a student. Um, and before I graduated, I uh, participated in an internship with Hilton, um, actually the Hilton, the neighboring city of Glendale, not too far from uh, Pasadena here. And that was my real uh, first hands-on experience working in a hotel. And that I think really kind of set me on the path um, after I graduated, I went to work for, as you mentioned, the Anaheim Orange County Visitor and Convention Bureau. And I started there as a sales coordinator and worked my way up. Uh, and then in 2017, I was thrilled to come back to Pasadena, which is where I grew up, and join the Pasadena Convention and Visitors Bureau as their national sales manager. And I've been there ever since. As they say, the rest is history. That's wonderful. I know a lot of us here today love Pasadena. I grew up in Arcadia, which is not that far. And I, you know, now I have a family and we've been in Pasadena for at least 10 plus years. You know, when we selected, wanted to select the city that I wanted to bring up my family and kids, Pasadena was definitely at the top of my choice. Yeah, it's the uh, right choice. <laughs> yes. Well, and I, I, I have to agree with you as, as, a, as a Pasadena native. I'll tell you that to live here is very different than folks who are visiting, you know, uh, kind of coming back into the city. I'm, I'm sharing a lot of the things uh, that, that visitors kind of appreciate that me as a resident, since I was very little, never really appreciated. So I was kind of like relearning all the great, you know, points of interest here in, in a relatively small city, but whether it comes to the dining or the venues uh, or the entertainment, things like that, here uh, in, in, in Pasadena, being able to share that with, with visitors is kind of a whole different perspective uh, that, that I never really appreciated growing up here, but now I certainly do. 
That's wonderful. So for the audience who is not familiar with Pasadena Convention or just Pasadena, you know, what exactly do you do at the Pasadena Convention and Visitors Bureau? So uh, primarily uh, the Pasadena Convention and Visitors Bureau is the sales and marketing arm of the city of Pasadena, promoting it to not just leisure travelers, but in my case in particular, um, showcasing the city as the premier destination for meetings and conventions. So when, when, when most people think of tourism, they think of families or couples, you know, kind of going on a vacation. Um, most of the tourism dollars in any given city, and especially in, in the case of Pasadena, are actually derived from large scale meetings and events, uh, professional meetings, professional conventions from, you know, corporations to associations and in our state's capital, California, all the way to our nation's capital in DC. We also host a bunch of international meetings. So my primary responsibility is attracting those events to the city of Pasadena, not only you know, booking our convention center, but uh, also our, our, our area hotels. The uh, city of Pasadena, uh, the, the tourism side of the city of Pasadena is a huge economic driver for the city. It supports police, fire, libraries, it's a huge boost to the general fund. So uh, our organization is, is the one organization in the city that's responsible for growing tourism. And in my case in particular, attracting those large scale meetings and events. And Pasadena just have so much to offer, right? We have the Rose Bowl, we have the Rose Parade that comes here. I remember going to Taiwan and people are like, where are you from? And I'm like, Pasadena. Yeah. But they're like, I don't know where that is. And I say, Rose Parade. They're like, I know, oh, you're from that city. So it's travel to, yeah. you know, beyond just the U.S. border here. So that's so exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the best sort of advertising you can ask for for at least one day of the year, people know Pasadena. So my job is to try to get them thinking about the other 364 days of the year when it's not on TV. Most people automatically think of the Rose Parade. We're trying to get them to think about it as a great you know, meetings and convention city. Right, and we've done a lot of conferences in, at the Pasadena Convention Center. And I right. would say as a state of art, you know, it's like lead certify. The people there are just really amazing crew because sometimes we go to other property, they're not necessarily that that's not the case, right? But with Pasadena Convention Center, I could say firsthand, we experience very top service from the people that are there. And I think, you know, that's just wonderful that we have something like that to offer within our city. And all the hotels that are in Pasadena you know, we have different range from the Westin to the Langham to the, right? So there's sure. so many different grades that if you, depending on your group, you could have so many variety and choices. Absolutely. Taylor, so, you know, after a whole year of the pandemic, what are you seeing events in terms, of, are you seeing events coming back now for in-person or when are you seeing the trend of like a lot of them coming back? Sure, yeah, you, you, you kind of touched on it. The state of California was the last state in the country to quote unquote reopen meetings. Uh, and, and so for quite some time, we were all used to uh, the suspension of those large gatherings. But now that we've moved beyond the blueprint in California since June 15th, that's opened up the doors to in-person events resuming, uh, not just in Pasadena, but up and down the state. Now there's no more capacity limits. There's no more physical distancing, testing or vaccination requirements. So groups are meeting again, uh, or, or at least they have plans to get out there very soon. Some of our local hotels that you mentioned just a little bit earlier, uh, they've already hosted weddings, reunions, 
social events. Um, in fact, I just attended my first live industry meeting since COVID just a few weeks ago. Um, the, uh, the middle part of summer at the convention center, that's when we start to see some of uh, a handful of those trade shows start to return to the Pasadena Convention Center. Um, and our larger citywide conventions, I would say, start to begin again in the fall. And by the time January 2022 comes around, we are off to the races in what is looking like it's going to be one of the busiest years we've had. Um, you can imagine all the business that we moved from 2020 and 2021 when we couldn't you know, host meetings. Most of those groups found a home in somewhere in 2022. So we, we not only had the existing sort of, uh, um, if you will, sort of random events that we scheduled in 2022, some three or four years ago, even before the pandemic, but on top of those events, which would be our standard calendar year, we've sprinkled in a bunch of those rebookings that we had to cancel in, uh, since, since last year. So 2022 was shaping up to be really, really busy. Um, and that starts literally in the first month. It's so great to hear, especially, you know, the entire industry was completely disrupted to see that we're going to have a really big comeback. Yes, yes. We're, I think the lesson here is if you haven't booked your space, call Taylor and do it now because yeah. it's being booked up. And, and don't think that March or October is going to happen because it's just not going to happen in the convention center. <laughs> Yeah. And then since we're talking about booking venues, what are some best event practices in terms of like venue contracts, right? So many variables. I know yeah. that's definitely one area that our clients always get stuck and that's why they hire us. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot to be said on this topic. Uh, and, and I know that that's what the majority of the conversation is going to be. So I'll, I'll try to summarize it as best I can. Um, I'll start off by saying that uh, contracts should be specific to your needs. Uh, they're, they're really drafted for the purpose so that both parties, in this case, the supplier, the venue, the hotel, the convention center, uh, and then on the other side is the client or the event organizer, the event planner. Those contracts should be drafted in a way that both parties understand the liabilities that each have themselves and what protections are in place or what possible damages, as in like financial penalty damages, are at risk because that contract is gonna be the agreement between both parties to the responsibilities that are assigned to both parties. So the hope is that what's drafted and ultimately signed off on outlines that mutual understanding between the two of you. So, so you wanna avoid uh, the potential for misunderstandings later. So the more you do and the more you can outline explicitly in your contract upfront, the better off you're gonna be in the very exceptional circumstances when you have to refer back to it by the time the event comes around. So the number one rule of working through a contract, which I always have to tell people, and you'll be shocked that I have to tell people all the time, is you have to read the contract. What? You have to read your contract. So let's get that out of the way. That's, that's rule number one. Uh, read the contract. Um, as far as best practices, if there's one thing we hear from planners all the time, and it's very clear, especially now is that they're looking for flexibility. That's the word, flexibility in, in pricing, in growing and shrinking their space, wherever that is, at a convention center, at a hotel, at a you know, special event venue. Um, and then they also, of course, want flexibility in their contract terms. For the most part, venues, including the convention center, 
and our partner hotels have been and continue to be granting a very generous level of flexibility, considering we're not quite out of the woods yet as far as COVID is concerned. So what's important to note is that you'll find you have greater negotiating room and flexibility in the events that are happening in the short term, you know, especially when it comes to meeting space rental, sleeping rooms, attrition, and food and beverage minimums. And in certain select circumstances, you could even get that flexibility around your cancellation terms. And I know that we'll get into that a little later. Um, realistically, the rest of 2021 is kind of looking like a bridge year, bridge year or a transition year, like you said, moving from the totally virtual 2020 to what for all intents and purposes, people are looking at 2022 is like the return to large scale events like we're used to. Um, so most groups are going to be expecting an attendee drop-off in this transition year. So you wanna make sure that your hotels are, 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 are understandable to the idea that, you know, if your conference normally brings 600 people in a pre-pandemic year, there's a lot of factors that, that, that may impact really only 400 can actually make it to your conference this year. So your hotels and your venues need to be up to speed on you know, okay, if we can't deliver on the amount of hotel rooms that we previously committed to or the food and beverage minimums, you wanna to come to an agreement very soon with those venues to give them a heads up so that they can accurately forecast. And that allows obviously uh, less of a risk on your part. So you don't have to deliver those original commitments, but it also gives an opportunity to the, to the venue to, you know, release some of your space or your rooms and resell it for their benefit. So it's kind of, it's a, um, it's a trade-off there. Yeah, so very well said. And I hope all of you guys heard that part where Taylor was saying, read the contract, right? So two keywords that specifically stood out is that and as well as flexibility. It's true. Yeah. A lot of the account manager that's currently working on for some of our clients negotiating contract, we're looking for venue who are flexible because yes. that's what our clients are looking for, right? It's no longer just like, this is what you get, but they want to be able to know they have a partner in yes. case, you know, pandemic hit the other way again, so that they're able to negotiate the terms, but we're all in it together, right? I yes. think that's the approach. We want it to be win-win situation. We are not trying to one-up each other. I think going in with that mindset is very different. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. The, 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 it, it's probably become a cliche now that we're, we're all in this together. That, as, as, as trite as it is, it is it's, it's never been more important because uh, the hotels understand that planners need a certain level of reassurance that mm -hmm. if something happens, they are not going to be beholden to you know, something that was explicitly written in writing. And now the group is going to have to deliver something that realistically is impossible. So as long as the hotels, for the, for the most part, they would rather have some assembly of a meeting than no meeting at all, or some assembly of an event versus none at all. So they're going to come to the table and try to give you room, you know, so that, you know, maybe, maybe uh, your, your attrition, which, you know, in a pre-pandemic year would be 80%. Maybe they're only looking at 60%. Maybe they're, they're going to tell you that you don't really need to meet your, your minimum unless you reach a certain level of attendance. Um, and it's, and, and the, the transparency and the, and the constant communication between the client and the venue has to be routine. It has to be consistent because when things change, you want both parties to know what's changing and how it impacts the meeting. Very nice. 
Great. And then what do you think are some, what can be done in terms of the venue search and sourcing process to perhaps make that contracting process a little bit easier for both end? Yes. Well, I, I always operate on uh, under the assumption that the contracting process between a client and a venue are always going to be easier when both parties have some negotiating room and that flexibility that we talked about earlier. So I would, I would advise planners that they'd be doing themselves a favor if they kept that in mind at the beginning of their search. And by that, I mean, start by shopping selectively. So shop, uh, shop for more cities, or if, or if you've already made a decision on a given location or a given city, then shop more venues in that city so that you have a better cross section of choices where there may be more negotiating room. If you have your heart set on one venue in particular, you might find yourself in a sort of a take it or leave it situation, feeling like you're, you know, backed into a corner, um, you know, in, in, the, in the sense that you're going to have to kind of take what, what, what they can give you versus if you have multiple options, you don't necessarily have to take the first and only offer that comes your way. There's, there's, there's an extra element of competition that might make that venue come closer to your, uh, your side of the aisle, if you will. Um, just, just because they know that you're not only looking at their one venue. Um, I would also say, speaking from a destination that, that, that holds citywide conventions, avoid shopping in a destination when there is already a citywide convention on the books. This is going to be my plug for the meeting and convention clients that are tuning in to the podcast. Um, tap into your convention and visitors bureau. They are a really, really good, good resource in, in this way. They'll have a sense of what large events are already scheduled in the destination. They could very well result in the hotels in particular having less flexibility and or much higher rates as a result of the compression that they're getting from the citywide convention. Um, and then finally, uh, I tell, I'd, I'd, I'd advise them to consider independent hotels too. Independent hotels are always known for offering more unique properties and more local experiences, but because they don't have a corporate infrastructure writing the contracts, they may also have an easier contracting process for groups. It's not just like the standard Marriott contract that, you know, that they're not going to change really, or it's got to go up to like six people in a corporate office somewhere. Uh, independent hotels have a lot more leeway as far as making decisions on a case-by-case -case basis that should give your group uh, more flexibility than you might find with a chain hotel. I definitely, you know, asking the venue about what other groups are in in-house or in the city, I think that's a fantastic question. We ask that a lot and it definitely has happened in the past when we just move our event one week out, either plus or minus one week, it was half the price. Yeah. right because there's that competition is not there and we don't need to be there right our event was totally unrelated so then why do we have to go fight when there's so many people in the city for i don't know rose ball or you know right. we don't have to be there during that time so taylor what are some questions exactly. people should be asking venues uh well I'll, I'll start off again by by saying uh number one you read the contract uh and then when you read the contract the, the first questions that, that, that you should be asking your venue are those clarifying questions, clarifying anything that you don't understand in that contract or, or, or anything that seems like it's an unreasonable or unnecessary liability or level of responsibility on your part. Sometimes just clarifying that language will go a long way. If you don't see mutual protection outlined, uh, especially in 
uh, terms of like the, indemnif the indemnification or exercising cancellation on the grounds of force majeure, you're definitely going to want to request that. So look at the contract and anything that seems odd or something that you don't frankly understand. Those are the first questions you should be asking your venue to, to kind of clarify those. Uh, I'd also say for every contract, um, event organizers should be prepared to negotiate a deposit schedule. So, you know, feel, feel, feel free to, 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 you know, go back and forth with the venue and try to negotiate a deposit schedule that works. For the most part, venues just have a standard deposit schedule, whether it's 25% up front and 75% 30 days out. Um, certain groups can do a 25, 25, 50. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of flexibility in those deposit schedules. So ask the questions about the deposit schedule that makes sense for you and your group. Um, also make sure you understand the cancellation terms. That's another big one, especially in, you know, in, in the wake of COVID. One of the best ways to avoid a large penalty uh, would be to negotiate a, a large penalty in regards to cancellation, for example, is to negotiate an option uh, to postpone or rebook the event. It could be the same event or an event of a similar size to a future date. And then on top of that, make sure that any deposits you've already paid are credited 100% to the future rebooking. So if those terms aren't expressed in the cancellation terms, ask those questions. See if, you know, instead of me paying this fee, can I, if I agree to rebook or postpone, and you can just hold on to my money and credit it to a future event, you might be able to alleviate yourself of, of some of that extra financial risk. Um, and then I would say certainly for the folks tuning in that are preparing for short-term events, hybrid or not, um, and you're expecting fewer attendees, we kind of mentioned that earlier, you may be at risk of attrition penalties for the originally budgeted uh, sleeping room commitment or food and beverage revenue minimums. So I tell you to, again, connect with your venues right away and ask questions, renegotiate those minimums, which is not only going to give you breathing room uh, in case your pickup is less than what you've previously committed, but again, it, it allows the hotel to forecast and prepare for a more realistic turnout that could give them an opportunity to resell your unused rooms or your unused event space. So they're also going to benefit. And that's something that, that, that they're likely not going to have a problem with because it allows them to, uh, to not really have to miss out on business. It doesn't help them if you're holding on to all four sections of the ballroom and you really only need two. They could sell the other two sections and you'll be off the hook. I love that. I think you, it's almost like keeping that win-win partnership in mind from the beginning, right? So I think I love a lot of the tips that you share. So in, in addition to that, are there any other win-win partnership tips that you want to share here today? Yes. Uh, I, I, not that I take issue with the phrase win-win partnership, but uh, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I think a lot of the time, it's not really a win-win in particular, just because one party tends to have more power or leverage over the other. Um, ultimately, instead of winning per se, uh, both parties should really be striving for and be more interested in reaching an agreement that they think is simply fair. I think fairness is sort of the operative word here. Because no matter how hard we try, it's going to be impossible to mitigate risk 100%, which is what the hotels want to do. That's what the clients want to do. Everybody wants to negotiate their weight so that there's no risk, which is just not realistic. So um, in the spirit of fairness, again, 
um, both sides have to be willing to assume some risk, some reasonable risk, which means that, you know, that theoretically, you know, it, it, it may not be a win-win. I think both sides could be satisfied with a, what's fair for you and fair for me. And there's a level of satisfaction on the spectrum of fairness and what's reasonable. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say again, my advice would be to be transparent. Um, and that starts with the, it starts as early as the RFP, the request for a proposal. So in that RFP, include your event objectives, include your history, your concessions, your contract terms, your must-haves versus your nice-to-haves. Know what your organization can and cannot agree to and why they can or they can't. Um, obviously, I, I tell you to be totally upfront and share whatever your deal breakers are. Don't keep the information. I know a lot of people like to keep the information close to their chest because they feel like they don't want to, you know, show all their cards up front. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to recommend that, that you kind of keep this stuff a secret. I, I recommend that you be very clear about what your specific needs are, what your specific concessions are, be upfront because ultimately you want an agreement that's useful for both parties. And the only way to get the venue to where you need them to be is by telling them. So uh, working for a venue myself, I'll tell you that uh, we as venues, and I could speak for the hotels too, are always gonna grant more flexibility, especially if the client is willing to put down more money on their deposit. So if there is a win-win to be had out there these days, especially right now when hotels are uh, venues as a whole, are more vulnerable from a cash flow standpoint. If you or your clients have the opportunity and they're in a financial position to put more money down up front or to prepay larger deposits in advance, hotels are going to be very flexible with you. Uh, they're going to give you a lot of what you're asking for because, um, again, back in the day when large deposits weren't that hard to come by and there's a lot of you know, groups that were willing to meet and, and be just as generous from a deposit standpoint, you know, it, it, it didn't really set your group apart. But if, if the hotel standard deposit schedule is 25% up front um, and your group is willing to put 50%, 70% down, um, you're going to notice that that's going to sweeten the pot for a lot of the venues and hotels and it's going to make them move in your direction with a lot more of the flexibility that you want. I love that advice. So more money down and I think fairness and that definitely yeah. goes in full circle. So last March when pandemic hit, I can, a lot of our phone here was ringing off the hook, right? Cause a I lot bet. of clients are calling, put either put the project on hold or either cancel. And guess what? The venues or the CVB that work with us in terms of their best effort, right? So a lot of clients weren't looking for a hundred percent back, but at least some kind of fairness. Cause we're all, it's happening to all of us. It wasn't yeah. just one industry, exactly. but there's some hotel that refused to give any money back. There are other hotels that, yes, we will push it back to, you know, one year from today's day or like make some kind of adjustment or some kind of concession. All those, I would say clients will end up going back to those venues. Absolutely you know, right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the partnership aspect you were talking about earlier. For the life of me, and, and trust me, you know, we, we canceled hundreds of events since last year. 
Um, and you know, the, the, the first people that they reach out to are the CVB and the venue. And I can't tell you how many clients reached out to us saying, oh my, you know, whether it's fill in the blank, this hotel, fill in the blank, this, this convention center, you know, they, they, they didn't give me a refund or they didn't want to honor our, our, our postponement or our credit to a future year. We fortunately in Pasadena had a more long-term approach, which wasn't to, you know, play hardball and try to, you know, you know, dig, dig your heels in and fight every client that wanted to exercise some sort of flexibility. We understood that the pandemic was going to come to an end and eventually you're going to have to go back to normal. And all these clients that you treated unfairly or clients that you weren't really operating from a, from a place of partnership with, they're not going to come back. They may be forced to come back and use their, their credit in 2022, 23, but they're never going to work with you again. So we understood that we, we, we had to sort of usher our clients throughout the entire process and sort of explain to them, look, if, if you canceled in 2020 and your next open year isn't until 2024, that's okay. We will, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll honor your, your deposit credit 100% into 2024. If they wanted a refund, they were entitled to it. But for the most part, because we were being so accommodating up front, and not really making them jump through hoops, they had no problem, you know, with us just holding on to their deposit and trans and transferring it to a future event date. So it's 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 definitely it was sort of like the wild west out there as as far as what certain cities and venues were doing. And now that the dust is kind of settling, I think the venues that were more generous and operated from a partnership standpoint, they're going to be the first ones to benefit because the clients are going to be that much more excited to do business with those people that they now trust more than the other ones. Yes, for sure. And then what to you, Taylor, is a reasonable cancellation policy? <laughs> yes, this is, this is another big uh, hot topic. Uh, well, we talked earlier, obviously the administrations of the vaccines and California now having already been reopened, it's made it much, much harder to successfully cancel uh, for groups to cancel penalty-free due to COVID. The sort of no questions, uh, no questions asked cancellation terms uh, under force majeure that we saw in 2020, those aren't really valid anymore. Um, the, 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 the further we get into 2021, the more difficult it's gonna be to sort of pull off those cancellations and those postponements with, with little or no penalties. Um, I know a lot of us learned a lot about force majeure this, this, this past year. Um, now that the circumstances that qualified most groups for, for, for those force majeure sort of penalty-free cancellations, they're no longer in place. Um, however, you know, nobody here has a crystal ball. So, you know, for the next six to 12 months, it's totally understandable that, you know, groups still want an out. They at least want a plan B. So for those clients that want to decide to cancel months ahead of time or, or want to reserve the right to cancel months in advance, I did. I I tell them, do not cancel outright. The best thing to do would 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 be to postpone your event or to rebook them. Otherwise, these venues are 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 going to ask you to pay some sort of cancellation penalties. If there's no force majeure circumstances surrounding the pandemic, like as is the case as of June fifteenth, hotels are not just going to let you walk away from a contract. They're going to first try to get you. They're, they're going to want to renegotiate terms. So if you aren't really fully prepared to deliver 100% of what you committed pre-pandemic, they're going to work with you. If you still don't feel comfortable holding an event, you know, this summer, this fall, um, 
before you just decide to cancel outright. Because um, I would tell you that you're, you should prepare yourself to pay some sort of a penalty unless you come up with the option to postpone or, or, or rebook that event. Um, a reasonable cancellation policy, uh, that should be one that is progressive or, or based on a timeline. In other words, the further out you cancel, the less of the penalty is. The closer you get to the event date, the larger that penalty grows. Usually in a contract, it's outlined in some sort of like a tiered breakdown relative to like a date range from the contract signature date to the event date. So uh, in, in your contracts, you, you probably have an opportunity for flexibility in making adjustments to either the dates in those date ranges or the percentage owed within those date ranges. For the most part, the venue is gonna be primarily concerned with at least having something so they can be made whole should you, should you cancel your event. Um, either reimbursements for like services already rendered or uh, what, what most venues would, would consider the cost of turning away other business that they can no that can no longer be recouped, right? If your group booked in 2019 for a 2021 event, your group has been holding space on their calendar for two years. If you decide to cancel, they for the last two years, they've been turning business away for those event dates because they thought you were coming. So there's likely gonna be some sort of a penalty for the cost of having to turn away all that business. Um, but that's something that is negotiable. And that's something that you're definitely gonna want to explicitly outline. You should actually have dollar value amounts as far as what your cancellation fees are. So if you're ch getting charged food and beverage minimum and you know 30 days out, they're gonna charge you 50% of that minimum, have that dollar amount be written out in the contract. If it's rental, have that dollar amount be written out in the contract. Um, and I would say one more pro tip, um, which is gonna be shocking to hear from a venue standpoint, but on the topic of cancellation, I think mutual cancellation is a good idea. Uh, in any venue contract, you're always going to see the term surrounding the client's cancellation, but few will actually give you express terms if the venue is actually the one to cancel on your client. For example, if the venue chooses to move you or, or bump your group, you're definitely going to want to have those damages outlined to show what's owed to the client or to you if, 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 if it's uh, in, in your case for that inconvenience. So whether it's the cost of all the marketing material or the cost of you know picking up your event and moving it to another hotel or another venue, mm -hmm. clients should always have a mutual cancellation clause in their contracts to outline what they're owed if the venue decides to cancel on them, which by the way, I tell you will, will happen. If it hasn't happened to you before, it will happen because if your group, let's just say arbitrarily is worth $100,000, and another group comes down the road and it's worth five times as much, that hotel is not gonna think twice um, as far as canceling on you for that, for that greater piece of business. It's just, it gets a little murky when there's not a real dollar value of what the hotel owes the client in that case. So um, if you're a, a, a client and you're signing contracts, make sure that you've also got cancellation terms in there that put you in a position if the venue cancels on you. So like Taylor say, read the contract. I think it keeps coming back to that. And then it's definitely true as an event management agency, a lot of time we're the one we have to negotiate this, you know, even looking at the percentages and working with a venue to do these and these unpredictable. We have one venue, we signed the contract, it was fine. And three months later, we went to site visit. There was a huge construction in the, at the entrance. 
right? And right. we're like, and then nobody ever told us we arrived and it was like orange all over. And we were all like, uh, what is this? And first, first question is, what is this? When will it be done? By uh, Will it be done by the time of our event? And it turns out it wasn't. So we literally have to go back and, you know, presence. We picked the hotel because it was such, it had a beautiful fountain. Like it had this presence when our attendees arrived. So we had to go back and renegotiate. There was another incident where, you know, the Langham here, it used to be a risk Carlton, And that's what right. the client paid for. They pay for their name, but then it switched to Langham, right? So the client's like, well, I pay for Ritz. I didn't pay for the Langham. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so the, Yeah. That, yeah. I'll, I'll, for 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 any of your clients that are that are on the uh, that are on the podcast that are looking for language that they want in their contract that reflects the very things that you're mentioning, Amanda. Quiet enjoyment. You know, if 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 you have counsel or an attorney that that that, that works with your corporation or your association, um, you know, having contract terms written around quiet enjoyment is important. Renovation or construction. Um, those those are all. Uh, negotiated terms that are that are usually added to a contract because the venues are not going to put those in their contract as a template. They're not they're not in the business of giving clients multiple opportunities to back out. But clients want that flexibility, like you said. Uh, probably the biggest example, you know, obviously, Amanda, you 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 brought up the example of the Ritz Carlton changing to the Langham. Imagine if you signed a contract with a full service, you know, Hilton hotel two years out, and by the time you get to it, it's now become a Hampton Inn. So, you know, it's one thing if you're going from one luxury brand to another, but what if you're going from a full, a full service brand to a limited service brand, or maybe not a brand at all? It goes from, you know, the crown city, you know, in after it goes to the Hilton. Your rates are probably reflective of a full service hotel rates with full service amenities. Those are not going to exist in a limited service property. So a lot of what you're paying for, you're not really getting in that, in that case. So, um, uh, the contract language uh, in that circumstance that, that, that I would recommend uh, some, of, uh, some of these clients that are listening uh, take a deeper look into is the transfer of ownership or transfer of management companies. Those are the, those are the real estate transactions that ultimately result, result in you know, a hotel changing flag or a hotel changing name. So if there is in fact a transfer of ownership or a management company and that hotel changes, clients have an option to either back out of the contract altogether or renegotiate whether it's the rates of the term so that now they reflect the current hotel and not the hotel that used to be there. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I think there are so many great tips for our audience today. Thank you so much, Taylor. Sure. And how can, uh, what's the best way for the audience again, touch with you? Uh, well, they can always, you know, re reach out to our office at, at the Pasadena Convention and Visitors Bureau. Uh, but if you want to reach out to me directly, you can just e email me. It's tfry at visitpasadena.com. That's the best way to contact me directly. If you've got any follow-up questions, tfry at visitpasadena.com. Perfect. And for those of you that want to book a space or your large corporation or association event here in Pasadena, make sure you give Taylor Ring, he's, as you can see, he's super knowledgeable and he's so passionate about Pasadena. So you definitely will be in good hands if you contact him. Amazing. Thank you so much, Taylor, for joining us today. And for those that are tuning in, if you have any question or if you're interested in the Pasadena Convention Center and Visitor Bureau, please reach out to Taylor and let us know in the comments. Thank you for tuning in in today's episode of Event Up. If your company is looking 
to level up your event experience, we are your solution. We do all the work, you take all the credit, give us a call. We also have a series of webinars that's actually coming up where we will be covering virtual events 101, a deep dive into engagement and impact, as well as going back to live events, a lot of pro tips. So be on the lookout for that information. Don't forget to share and subscribe to more of our stations and episodes. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time on Event Up.